Acts 10.1 begins, Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and he was desiring to eat, but while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures on the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate, and calling out, they were asking whether Simon who was also called Peter, was staying there. Would you pray with me? Good and gracious Father, we do thank you for this wonderful gift to come. We thank you, Father, for the one who made it all possible. We thank you for the love and the sacrifice of Jesus. We thank you, Father, for the proclamation that Today, in Christ, we are all one. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us of any ways that we have fallen short. And we pray, inviting, humbly asking for the Holy Spirit to breathe through your holy word and help us to see your will for our lives, for this church, your church, we confess, Father, that we cannot do this without you, that without the power of your Spirit, they will simply be empty words. But, oh God, we desire so much for this moment. So speak to us and unite us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A couple of years ago, I came across a book entitled Autopsy of a Deceased Church. Man, that's a... Serious name, isn't it? Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And in this book, it had 10 characteristics that were common to churches that had to close their door for the final time. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the heartbreak? 
The years prior to, they saw the decline. But you know how common it is? Statistics say that in America, 77 churches close their doors every week. 4,000 churches every year close the doors for the very last time. Did you know that there are less than half the number of churches today that there were only 100 years ago? Now, I don't think we feel that statistic as much in the South and the Bible Belt as in some regions. I'm from Colorado. I went out to visit my mama, and uh, I was looking for a Baptist church that I might worship in that one time, and, and there was one Baptist church. You go to the Northeast, you go to the Far West, you don't see a church on every corner. In fact, they're very strange, unique. We have less than half. 3,500 people every day leave the church. 3,500 people. Since 1950, there's one-third fewer churches in the U.S. And because we care about the church, amen? We care about the church. We care about this nation. We care about our children and grandchildren. It seems to me that we should be very interested. We should be very concerned. And we should be looking at those common characteristics of those churches that had to close those doors. And we should be willing, what? To take action to make sure that we're not part of that statistic. In fact, at our last ministry retreat, there's, I know there's at least 32 other people in the congregation that have read this book. We, we read this prior to going on the ministry retreat. We, we talked about these common characteristics. and So we talked about some like the past became a hero. The budget moved inward. The Great Commission became the Great Omission. Now listen, I'm only halfway through the list. I, don't tune out. I mean, we should be holding these up to our congregation, to this church that we love. Man, we just celebrated 150 years. I want it to be 160. I want it to be 170. I want, to, I want it to be, when I leave, that it's healthier than when I came. I, I want it to be uh, healthy until Jesus returns for all of his church. The church failed to pray together. The church obsessed over facilities. And the church refused to look like the community. There are a few intersections in my life that drew attention to that last one. The church refused to look like the community. The first one happened, uh, oh, it happened the first time a couple years ago, but this last year at the J. Glenn Edwards graduation. And Scott and I, we were standing right over there, and that's where I, I took this picture. You can see it. I looked up, and man, the first thing I thought is at this first intersection was this. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that was our church every Sunday morning? Amen? And, and, and let me just ask you this. What would you be willing in your life to contribute to that so that your church would look like that every Sunday morning? I looked at that, and I said, man, wouldn't that be wonderful? But the second thought that came in just right behind it was, man, that's my community. That's that's three to five miles around the circumference of this church. That's our community. Remember what the statistics said, the church refused to look like its community. That's us. That should be us, right? A community that's incredibly rich and racially diverse. And we compare that picture to the church refused to look like the community. Well, just look around, look around. The second intersection came in my life a, a little while back when Kenny Lamb, he brought me this wonderful, big old thick book, a study of our community. 
and, and you know, looked at the statistics, and they all kind of boiled down to this, you know, what, what does the community look like outside those doors? You know, it's just a, a quick summary. It's a little bit off, but an easy way to remember it is if you look at the statistics outside within a five-mile radius of Jonesboro and the Jonesboro community, it's basically one-third Caucasian, one-third Hispanic, one-third African-American. One-third, one-third, one-third. And again, the characteristics of a dying church is the church refused to look like the community. Outside those doors, one-third, one-third, one-third. Again, look inside the church. The third intersection happened a little while back when I was talking to a, a, a dear friend, a visitor of the church, a person of color. And I asked this person, I said, how has your experience been with, with the church? And this person responded, uh, it was, it, it's great. This person said, I, I love the church. And then they added, white people have never been so nice to me in my entire life. And man, that caught me off guard. That was startling to me. And I guess we could look at it in one way and say, you know, that's encouraging. There's something positive about the church there. But my other thought was this. That person's life experience has been so incredibly different than mine. That thought would have never crossed my mind. And it just kind of brought me to the point where I started to ask myself, are there things that I'm just ignorant about? That person's life experiences are so different. That thought process was so different than mine. Are there things that I just have bl I'm blind about? And ignorance isn't bad. It just means I don't know yet. That's all it means. Why is it that we don't look like our community? In the 1960s, Martin Luther King said this. He said, I think... It is one of the great tragedies of our nation that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours in Christian America. And that still seems to be true, although it isn't aligned with the Scriptures, and it doesn't seem to be aligned with the will of our Heavenly Father. Why is it that we don't look like our community? You know, the first thing I always think of is, man, there's some language barriers. That might be part of it. It seems as though we welcome all who come. I heard a conversation between a, 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 man, a, a man of color and his pastor recently, and he said, he said, you know, I've been coming to this church for a long time. This isn't our church, but a conversation between two. He said to his pastor, I've been coming to this church a long time, and he said, you know, I've always felt welcome here. I love this church, but he said, I always feel like a guest. Like, maybe I'm not a full partner. One pastor said that most churches want to be multicolored, but they don't want to be multi-ethnic. You hear the difference? In other words, can we include different elements of worship and include multiple ethnicities? Be blessed by that. I had this incredible experience this just this Christmas. We went to see Kenny Lamb. Kenny was leading a choir. He's doing an interim. And uh, they have a singing Christmas tree. That's a tradition at their church. And they go to the mall. And they set up this giant. It's about four stories tall. And it's, it's, it's impressive. There's Kenny. He's leading it and everything, you know. And it's gorgeous. The music's gorgeous. He did a wonderful job. The choir did a wonderful job. 
We're sitting there about two-thirds of the way through the performance in the mall. We're sitting in this little amphitheater thing. And, uh, and uh, one of the songs, uh, one of the traditional Christmas carols, they started to sing in Spanish. And I thought, well, that's cool. That's very cool. And I thought, they'll probably sing the first verse in Spanish, and then they'll transition to English. But they didn't. They sang the whole song in Spanish. And at that particular moment, I looked around, because I was kind of curious what the audience was, and I saw that it was, it was just a lot of Hispanic folks around, but there was this one fellow over to my right. I'll never forget his face. I don't want to forget his face. I looked over at this one Hispanic gentleman, and he was just beaming as he listened to that Christmas carol in his own language. He was just beaming. And you think, well, maybe that's just his favorite car- Christmas carol. No, it was more than that, I assure you. It was that in that moment he felt like he was an insider. And oh God in heaven, every one of us wants what? To feel like we're part of something. Not just welcome, not just a guest, but that we are part of something. And in that moment, I looked at his face and I just thought, man, I so, I so want this church to be that kind of place where everyone feels like they're insiders, that they're part of the family. I looked at the choir this morning and I thought, man, look at that choir. I know that's a sen- they've got a sense of family and community. They do stuff together. They, they eat together because we're Baptists, you know, and they, and they just... They, I think of a, a couple of the Sunday school classes, you know, they're just, they're just tight, they're family, they, they've got that sense of community, that sense of oneness. Lord in heaven, isn't there room for everybody? One third, one third, one third, but all united in Christ to have that sense of oneness and community. You see, this isn't just about statistics. This is about God's family and his will. And we want to position ourselves so he can just bless us. And when people come, are they really feeling like part of the family, part of the community? Why is it that we don't look like our community? You know, the truth is, I'm not entirely sure. But I don't think we need to be afraid or uncomfortable to ask the question. It seems like when we ask that kind of question, all of a sudden our, our anxiety comes up. Man, you know what I do know about this church? This is a goodwill church. We'll do the right thing. We'll do our very best. And so if there's some things that we don't know, we don't need to be anxious about it. We just need to ask the right questions. Because I truly feel this is God's will that we are united, one body in Christ. I want, to, I want to read I read Revelation 7 to you. It's one of my favorite passages in the Scripture. You'll know it in an instant. But as I read it, I want you to just envision in your mind, just envision in your mind this incredible time in heaven that will certainly come. Revelation 7, 9 says this, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes, peoples, and tongues. Isn't that something? And standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now my question for you is this. When you see that image in your mind, do you see every nation and ethnicity separated in their own section? 
Like, you know, Ukrainians over there, Cubans over there, blacks over there, whites over here, Baptists all in the back row because that's where the Baptists sit. <laughs> Presbyterians over looking very beautiful, wonderful, smiling. Charismatics, the only ones not in their place, they're running up and down the aisles. Do you see us all separated in heaven? Because all the scriptures say is, we will be before the Lord, praising God and the Lamb. And if that's God's desire there in heaven, surely it is here as well. I don't think we need to be afraid to ask the questions. Go back one, would you? Please listen, I'm not saying that we should just go out and get some people of color. Because that would be foolishness, and it wouldn't work. I'm saying that it's important that we ask ourselves some questions without fear or anxiety. Questions like, are we inclusive to all people? Are there barriers we put up that we might not even be aware of? You know, I was talking to the staff. We talked... We always talk about the message before, and we talked about it. And, and, and you know, one, one of the staff members said this. When people drive by the church, they look at us and they go, that's, that's a rich white church. It just, I mean, that just is. That's, it's, that's a rich white church. Doesn't, doesn't matter if it's not true. It is true, whatever. And that's a barrier. Are there barriers we put up that we're not even aware about? When visitors come, are they just welcome? They should be welcome. But do they also have the sense that they can become full partners? Is there room in the worship service that include different styles of worship and ethnicity so that everyone has a space, a place where they can worship? Is the most important thing about us not our ethnicity or our nationality, but that we are one in Christ, united in the Spirit? That we're not... This isn't our church, but this is his church. And we want to welcome everybody, everyone. And again, listen, 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 listen. You might say, well, this isn't my issue. This isn't my problem. I, I've got issues. This isn't one of them. Well, listen, it is our issue. Because again, one-third, one-third, one-third outside those doors. And we look around, and it's not who we are inside the doors. It might, it might be easy, it might not be easy for us. It, it wasn't easy for Peter. Consider Acts 10 again. We're introduced to Cornelius. Remember Cornelius? Cornelius is a Roman like those that crucified Jesus. Cornelius is a Gentile. And to the Jews, that pretty much meant that he was just a stray dog, probably worse than a stray dog. He was the enemy. He was an outsider. In every way, He's a bad guy. He is unclean. The worst thing that you could say about anybody as a Jew. He's unclean. He's an outsider, except the outsider is the one that God chooses to use, saying, send some men and bring Peter here. The next day, Peter's up on the roof. He's praying, and he gets hungry, and he falls into a trance. In Acts 10, 11, it says, And he saw the sky open up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. 
And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and the birds of the air. Clearly, these are all unclean animals. They were forbidden based upon Leviticus 11. Acts 10.13, a voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. My sense is, listen, my sense is that this isn't just a response to like, okay, this is what I've been taught all my life. It had been ingrained in him. This isn't like, oh, I don't eat carbs. That's not, that's not what's going on here. This is like so ingrained in him that I imagine that there's physical revulsion. Oh, no, Lord, never have I ever done that. Acts 10, 15, again, a voice came to him a second time. Listen now, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. What just happened? What just happened? The ministry of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice, the blood of Christ has cleansed. The barriers between us and them torn down. Who, who would we be to then rebuild those walls? We look at this story, this imagery, it's amazing, it's intense, and some might point at it and say, ha-ha, there's, there's the moment where it became okay for me to eat barbecue. That, that, now I can eat bacon, I can eat shrimp. But that's not, that's not the point. The point, rather, is this, John 3, 16. For God so loved what? The world. Thank you. All nations, peoples, and ethnicities, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever tribes and peoples and tongues, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so, Peter, those that are different from you, those you have looked down upon, those you have considered outsiders, those you have considered less than you by the blood of Jesus are now insiders and are full partners in the faith. And Peter, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And Peter, this is going to be hard for you, so I'm going to say it three times to make sure that you get it. Just like the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3.26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. What, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And surely that must include there is neither black nor white nor brown, but we are one in Christ as I was studying this week, I came across a passage and a, a new commentary that I'd never seen before. And the passage will be familiar to you. You know this. Uh, it, it, it's the only time that I am aware of in Jesus' three-year ministry. Or three-year ministry. It is the only time that I can point to where Jesus was absolutely furious. Can you think of the time? The time where he just went into what some might just call an absolute rage. One time in his three-year earthly ministry, Mark eleven fifteen. 15. 
What causes such anger? Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers. Imagine that. And the seats of those who were selling doves, throwing them over, and he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach them and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Nowhere else in the scriptures do I see Jesus so angry. And isn't it a worthwhile question to say, why? Why at this particular point? It wasn't when the apostles made continuous and seemingly stupid mistakes. It wasn't when Judas betrayed him. You don't see this kind of anger. It, it wasn't from the cross that you see that kind of anger. So what causes Jesus to be so angry here? It helps us to know that this particular place is called the court of Gentiles. The outsiders. The ones that were unclean, but were also worshipers of Yahweh. The Gentiles who were God-fearers. And this one time, Jesus is so angry because instead of making a way for the outsider, making a way for the Gentile, making a way for the foreigners, because they are different, the money changers are stealing from them and they are putting up a barrier between them and their God. And Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations and all the nationalities, not in different churches, not separated, but one church, worshiping God. Why is it that we don't look like our community? Maybe there's some language barriers, but you know that doesn't mean we couldn't address that. I, I believe that we are a more inclusive church than many. I remember in my very first church, uh, the chairman of deacons came up to me and mentioned an African-American man in the community. I'll never forget him saying, he's black, but he's a good one. And I was so shocked because he thought it was okay for him to say that in the church. Certainly we're more inclusive than that. But are all people not only welcome guests, but do they have a sense that they can become full partners of the church? Is there a different style of worship that we could include that would be a blessing to other people? Do I have some blind spots because my life experience is just so different than my brothers and sisters of color? I know I have blind spots. In the book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church, the author, said, the author says that there are a healthy response, a fourfold healthy response to turning around. The first is to admit that there's a problem. Outside those doors, one-third, one-third, one-third. Inside, look around. The second response is to pray for wisdom. The third is to be willing to change. And the fourth is to take action. So I propose over the next few weeks, without fear, without anxiety, 
we simply have an open conversation about where we are, that we look at the scriptures and that we pray for wisdom. And I know that so many of you love this church. You have invested so much of your life in this church. And because I know that's true, I know you're concerned about his future. But even more importantly, I know you love God and his church, not our church, but his church. So because this is true, can we pray together for God to show us the things that we can do that we can have the strength to make the changes where necessary so that we can simply be his church and a church for all people. Could we even begin to pray right now? Would you pray with me? Help us, Lord. Help us even to pray as we should in this moment. I pray, Father, that by the power of your Spirit, that you would show us. Show us how we can be open hands and open heart to people who desperately need you, regardless of their color, regardless of their nationality. May this truly be your church and a church for all people. Help us to see ways where we may be falling short without anxiety, frustration, or anger, but just help us to see so that we can truly be the body of Christ for all people. I know I have blind spots. Help us all to see. As it is in heaven, may it also be here. As the one thing in heaven that will unite us all will be the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, may we also be united here fully, completely, in Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.